Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Nick Amaluxon. Thanks for being on the show, Nick. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Nick spent a decade in the automotive industry as a technician before transitioning to real estate. He invests in single family, turnkey, and multifamily in multiple markets. He's a real estate coach, host of the Austin chapter of the South Texas Multifamily and More Meetup, and is a partner and asset manager at Quantum Capital. Nick, welcome to the show. Give us a little bit about your focus in real estate and the syndication business right now, and let's jump into some of your expertise. Yeah, we focus, you know, value-add properties, B and C class, and, you know, two of our main markets are Los Angeles and Austin. I got started with my partner, Mark. We met at the end of 2018, I believe, somewhere around that time and kind of just took off from there and scaled up pretty quickly in Austin. And, you know, now we're expanding a little bit south of Austin, but that's kind of our main focus. Nice. Tell me a little about, yeah, I'll back up a little bit and tell me a little bit about, you know, you were a technician and you decided to get in the real estate industry. Why, for one? And then tell me a little bit about that transition. Yeah, I actually loved being a technician. I thought it was a really fun job. I was, I was really good at it, paid very well for what I did. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was very physical work and you reach a cap really quickly on what you can earn and achieve. And as I reached that, and, you know, I also started having kids. So that kind of changes your mindset as well. Was just looking for ways to kind of diversify where my income was coming in. And, you know, after failing at a few other paths, I kind of landed in real estate. It's always been kind of an interest of mine. I bought at a great time in a great market. So that kind of showed me early on the benefits of real estate investing. And then, you know, as we, my wife and I got more and more into it, it became really fun and interesting. And I thought, you know, how can I make a career out of this? How can I do this full time? And, you know, through that, that's kind of how we transitioned to multifamily when I understood the scale and the business aspect of it. Give me just one or two key things that helped you to go from the W-2 to full-time, you know, commercial real estate. I mean, treating it as a job, I think is a big part, especially if you're trying to make a business out of it. So having that mindset where, you know, it doesn't matter if I don't want to do something today, it, it has to get done. It's easy to kind of glorify the investment in real estate process, but a lot of it is tough, hard work. It's, you know, late night and then deadlines and I think going in with that mindset helps. I've always been, I get my work ethic from my parents. So I think that's helped a lot. And patience, you know, being patient and willing to do a lot of work on the front end for a reward down the road. I think that's very well said. You have to be patient. You have to be willing to work hard. You have to be able to see the bigger picture. That's you know much further out. It's not today. It's not happening tomorrow. But again, the listeners hear me say this all the time. It's those small, consistent actions over a long period of time that lead to bigger things. So appreciate just those words of wisdom. What about, you know, you mentioned finding your partner and, you know, tell me a little about how did that, you know, affect your business? Maybe it shed some light in how did you know he's the right partner and what did that do for your business? How did you know he's the right fit? Well, starting out, you know, I was a technician in Austin, so it's not like I had a lot of capital or a huge network, right? But I was in a very competitive and high-priced market. So early on, I knew I had to find individuals with both experience and, you know, a network and liquidity to help me do the size of deals I was looking to do. 
So as I was networking, you know, I paid special attention to people who had experience and brought all of that to the table. So, you know, as far as what they could offer, that was the main focus when I was looking for that. And through that, I found a lot of people who out of our state, but interested in our market, very typical for, for Austin, who were looking to invest and just found a partner where we just kind of clicked, you know, our philosophies were the same, what we were looking to achieve were very similar. You know, I had an abundance, what he was lacking, which was time and being boots on the ground. And then he, you know, made up for a lot of my deficiencies. So it worked out really well. As far as, you know, how do we decide to be partners? It was kind of an organic process. You know, we started looking at deals. Well, I was looking at deals and as I was finding interesting ones, I would, you know, kind of approach them and see if this is something he was interested in. And we didn't start out as a partnership looking for deals together. It was, you know, as I'm going through the process, finding opportunities is when I would kind of approach because that was the value I could add, right? Is finding good things to invest in. I like thinking through, you know, partnerships a little bit when somebody, you know, like yourself has done that. I mean, I did the same thing and it was finding that individual where we aligned on so many things. However, one thing that was very different was just the complementary skill sets, you know, the different things that we brought to the table, which was so important to our success or moving very fast and strategically. So tell us a little about, you know, your first syndication and how you got to that deal. What were some key things that made that happen? Was it the partnership? Was it things you've been working on before? Was it, you know, something you were even doing while you're working full time? You know, how did that work? The first deal came about just after a lot of searching, you know, at that point I had started to develop pretty good relationships with the brokers out here. It came pretty quickly across my desk and it looked very interesting. So luckily I was able, this when I was still working full time, but I was able to get out there very quickly, get our offer turned in before it hit the market. So I think that gave us a little bit of an advantage. And then, yeah, leveraging you know a partner like Mark, who's my partner, his experience and track record when you're starting out certainly helps you you know, get your offers taken seriously instead of just being a newbie with really nobody behind you to kind of back you up. Tell me how you approach that a little bit. Like with that broker conversation, how did you express that track record and experience, even though it was somebody else's? Well, sure. At this point, you know, we had offered on a bunch of properties together, you know, so they've kind of started to know who's with me and who's not. I like to use the royal we a lot when I'm talking with brokers, just because you know, I'm kind of leveraging no matter what I would have had, you know, somebody with experience and capital behind me. But at that point I knew it was Mark and just kind of expressing it as our track record, you know, as quantum capital and not here's my partner, Mark's track record. And here's mine. It's, you know, we're quantum capital because that's how we came into that deal. It just made it easier, I guess. No, that's awesome. Most have done that or do that, you know, just to, you got to have experience on your team and getting started. Nobody had experience right on the first deal that they did. And so you have to bring experience one way or the other, whether it's your property management or partner or someone, that's extremely helpful. So can you share anything about the deal, the size it was, or any struggles that you all had getting that deal to the closing table, you know, being that first one for you? So one thing that we did, uh, it's a 53 unit in Austin. It ended up being about 7 million all in. I think the biggest struggle was just not really having all of our team members in place as we went under contract. Even though we'd kind of been offering, we knew kind of who was there when it when it got time to hit the ground running, a lot of inspectors and things like that kind of fell through when we had a short due diligence time just to be competitive in the market. So that was kind of the biggest hurdle. And, you know, at this time I was still working at W2, so it's not like I could drop everything and focus on this, but at the same time, you know, we had a lot of capital tied up. So that was a very stressful 17 days. I swore after that, I'd never do a due diligence period that short again. And then I think on the next deal, we did short as well. But at that point, we had our team and everybody in place. It was a lot easier. 
So you learned a lot. Learned a lot, yeah. Yeah, you learned a lot, especially about that team and having those people in place. So what was different on the next one? What did you lack on the first one? And what was different on the next one that made that much more smooth? Yeah, I mean, just your go-tos when it comes time for your third parties, your, you know, getting your engineering reports, your unit walkthroughs, all that done. For the first deal, we had who we wanted to use and then that fell through. And then it was like, okay, what do we do now? Now we're scrambling, trying to find backups. You know, at this point, we had had a team that had been tested. We conferred with them ahead of time, which is something we didn't do on the first deal. So we had everybody lined up. So when we signed the contract, it was, you know, the next day we were out there on the property. Yeah. Wow. No, that is awesome. Tell me about how did you all raise the money for that deal? That one was actually just a joint venture from my partner and myself. So we had the capital okay. ready to go. Nice. Nice. Okay. And so what about moving forward now? How are you all, you know, raising money now from investors or, you know, how's that growing? Uh, good. We were supposed to close yesterday on a deal. There's this freak snowstorm out in Texas. So it's been delayed a week, but we took a bit of a break in 2020, just to kind of see where things were landing. And then as we started back up in June, Austin's just been on a tear. So it's been a very competitive market, but we finally found a deal that kind of met what we were looking for. Funnily enough, it had actually been brought to us in December of 2019 and then fell off and came back. But, you know, we're set to close on that soon. And, you know, the capital nice. raise went smooth. You know, there's a lot of investor interest out there right now. Awesome. Well, tell me a little about, you said you took a break in 2020. Tell me about your thoughts behind that and, you know, what you learned. In retrospect, I don't know if I would have made a different decision. You know, I think we were probably safe to continue, you know, buying. It's just so much was happening. Right. You know, lending requirements were getting tighter occupancy levels in Austin, at least. And I feel like most major urban areas were, were falling, rents were softening, but prices, you know, there's no fluctuation prices. If anything, they were going the opposite way. And, you know, part of our pausing was just kind of assessing, you know, where we're at and, and trying to figure out where we go from here, because we're also, you know, fiduciary, fiduciaries of people's money. So on the front end, we don't want to make bad deals and not knowing kind of where the market is, is a good way to overpay and then also we're, you know, big investors in our deals as well, because that's why we do it. We like to buy property and we bring people along with us. And so if we're not comfortable, it's hard for us to feel confident bringing other people into a deal as well. Of course. No, that's very respectful. No doubt about it. Tell us a little bit about managing your time, family, those things while working full time and getting to that first large deal and making that happen. You know, you talk about how stressful the due diligence, all this stuff was, but, you know, getting up to that point. There's a lot of work that's already gone in before that even happens. And most, you know, especially while working full time and growing family, it's difficult, right? I know it was for me. How did you do that and manage all that? You really got to take advantage of any downtime you have, especially when you're working at W2. Now, luckily, I was in a career where and at a level in my career where I had a lot of, you know, weight and expertise. So I could kind of throw that around and, you know, take breaks when I needed to to hop on calls. But also a lot of my time was my own. And so that prepared me for not being a W2. But you know, having that kind of compensation structure is more of a production versus you need to punch a time clock. And so as long as I was getting the work done, it worked out. So there were definitely some long nights at work, making up for some short days, you know, coming up where I knew I had to, you know, go on a tour at 12 in the afternoon. And it was going to take an hour and a half. And so I couldn't take a lunch that long. I think family was the hardest part, you know, kind of balancing that, but also, you know, coming home and having a bunch of deals to underwrite and emails to follow up on and just had some late nights. I mean, at the end, you just got to do what you got to do. You just have to do what you got to do. Before we started recording, you know, Nick, you said, whatever it takes to get a great deal done, right? Kind of said, you're all focus. And do you have an example or two of that? Just because I like that mindset, you know, I just like the mindset, you just have to keep pushing, you know, just that never give up mentality that I talk about. 
So any example of that, you know, where you just had to do whatever it takes, or maybe, you know, we were at that time talking about JVing versus syndication and you all were going to look at each deal, you know, and figure out what the best option is, right? You know, how have you all done that? Or maybe give us an example so we can, you know, think like that too. You know, to do whatever it takes in Austin, you know, and and probably in every market, you got to move quick, you know, especially on a good deal. They go fast. So I guess just referencing the first deal, I got the email that morning. I ended up having to take a very long lunch to go tour the property that afternoon. I took the next day to submit our offer once again during lunch. And then I ended up having to work, you know, all weekend to make up for that time. And then the 14 day, sorry, 17 day due diligence period, it was a lot of, you know, waking up to get to work at six instead of 7.30. So I could leave at three so I could complete what I needed to complete, you know, and then you're up till 1am. I don't know if that's, if there's one solid example in there of where it was doing whatever it takes, it's more of a, like a long-term grind in that respect. When it comes, I mean, it's kind of the same with deals, right? If you're getting into a deal and you have capital raise or you're underwriting and it seems like, yeah, maybe this doesn't work in syndication, but you still like the long-term prospects of the property, you know, you just keep exhausting, I guess, all options until it's just, you're out. But most of the time it's end up at the out of options if you're doing your job correctly. You know, there's always a way to get a good deal done. Yeah, yeah, no, I just like that mindset. Let's exhaust it. And we want to be safe about it, right? I mean, we're going to have uh, different things in place to ensure we're still as conservative as we should be and prepared, all those things. But yeah, you got to get creative more times than not, right? To get a deal done. And on that line of thought, you know, how do you prepare for a downturn or how have you prepared in the past? Maybe you, how you see other people preparing or not being prepared, but what have you learned about that and how do you all do it? Yeah. And this is where having a partner like Mark, my partner who has been in it for 20 years, certainly helped, right? Because he's, you know, has decades experience behind him. So he's always kind of cautious about that. And I'm certainly cautious as well, but you know, that experience helps on our team. A lot of it is just being really, you know, leveraged appropriately and then having good capital reserves. And when it comes to buying, you know, having a long-term horizon, especially now, you know, we want our debt to be flexible and our business plans to, you know, maybe even pushing past that seven-year timeline to make the most sense out of it. And I guess just being flexible. But as far as being prepared for a downturn, it's, yeah, being well-capitalized and not over-leveraged. Could you give us just a little more detail there as far as do you have a certain amount of leverage you'd like to stay under, anything like that, and even just proper reserves? We talk about reserves often on the show. I would just love your opinion about how do you know if you have enough reserves? It certainly just depends on the size of the project and the scope of what you're trying to achieve. You know, being in LA and Austin, we have properties where it's 24 units and, you know, where it's, you know, 100. So reserves for those differ. There are also 1902 properties in the 1980s. So, you know, it depends a lot on the asset size and class, but most of the time, you know, we want at least two months of all expenses, including, you know, debt, asset management, CapEx, all that stuff in reserve, just off to the side. We also have pretty healthy capital renovation budgets and buyout budgets. And then on top of that, contingencies, you know, we're typically doing 10 to 15% contingency funds when we're looking at projects like that, just so we have it. Now, does that hurt our cash on cash and returns? Can we juice them more by not having those? Sure. But at the same time, you know, we're not doing a duty to anybody by not being prepared for that. And as far as leverage goes, you know, we kind of look at it as what's the lowest amount of leverage we can use to hit the returns we're looking for, right? If we get too close to, I mean, we're in our markets, we never see 80% or even close to 75% in some deals on the front end. So we're typically, you know, 65, 70, maybe even below that 65. And then just looking for refinances, we try and stay around that 70%. 
Nice. No, and I appreciate your thought process too on, I mean, reserves are so important to me. And again, listeners hear it all the time. It's so important. It does hinder your return slightly, but yeah, you're going to sleep so much better, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be worth it. It's so worth it. And to have those reserves in place, I just appreciate you saying that. What about your prediction over the next six to 12 months in the real estate market? Well, my crystal ball is just as broken as everybody's, but I'll tell you what we're doing is just looking for good deals. And for us right now that, you know, value add is still very attractive, but we want to be really protected going in. And so that kind of makes those deals harder to do. You know, we're not really looking at bridge debt right now or any type of that financing. So typically you're doing, you know, 50, maybe even lower percent on the leverage depending on how distressed the deal is. And that's kind of the method that wouldn't work for syndication just because of all the risk there. But as far as what we're looking for is probably a more stabilized deal. You know, we want some upside, but something that really just is going to get very attractive financing that we can lock in for a long term. And you're kind of coupon cutting, I guess, to get to the end, but it's going to be very stable and in good markets. I think that's a big part of it too, is you can buy a bland deal, I guess, but in great markets and it kind of helps having that headwind. Well, Nick, you know, just getting to the point that you are right now, you've had to have been very disciplined or have a lot of self-discipline. It's something that's very important to me and I'm just learning about all the time and focusing on personally and trying to help others do the same. You know, what are a couple of daily habits or anything that you have that you're very disciplined about that have helped you achieve success? I grew up with ADHD and not the hyperactive kind, but where I kind of focus on what's the most interesting thing and a big success tip or I guess just a survival tip that I kind of live by is calendars and tracking everything on lists. You know, if, I, if it doesn't get written down, if it's not in my calendar, it's not going to happen, right? So for me, it's I always have a pad of paper with me. My calendar is very detailed and that kind of helps, you know, plan out my weeks and plan out my days, which certainly helps when you have a big project coming up or something that you need to focus on. You can map out that time. Other than that, you know, nothing more, I guess, prosaic than what most people say. And it's having a good you know, morning routine certainly helps. I like to run and that's very good for the psychological aspects. So I would say that's very important as well. Appreciate you sharing that. Anything else about your morning routine that you're just like, this just helps me to do it every day, coffee, or I don't use it running or anything like that. That just is a must. Well, definitely coffee. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Outside of that, no, you know, I've got two small children. And so waking up and kind of starting my morning and getting work in before they're up and about helps a ton. But then also being able to spend my morning with them certainly, you know, makes it for a great day. Yeah, couldn't agree more. What's your best source right now for meeting new investors? Right now, referrals, surprisingly enough, I feel like it's the best way to meet new investors. You know, we have a podcast, which certainly helps get our name out there. But that's, you know, more of a fun, creative project for us. Outside of that, you know, I'm part of some networking communities like Jake and Gino, which is a really good place to meet, you know, new investors. What about what's the number one thing that's contributed to your success? I would say, man, it's probably a split between either networking and then just, like I said, treat it like a job, like just being diligent in what you need to do. And how do you like to give back? I need to give back more with time. That's something I'm trying to focus on this year. But most of what we get back is just to organizations in our area that are helping with causes that we support. My wife's been a special education teacher for her whole career. So we're pretty heavily invested in that area. And then, you know, affordable housing is a focus of ours as well. Nice. Well, Nick, I'm grateful to have met you and had you on the show. Just want to say congratulations to your success and know firsthand the difficulty of working full time while trying to get a business going and growing family and all those things. It's not easy. No doubt about it. 
I mean, it is a lot to manage. You've said like the family portion managing that's, is, you know, some of the most difficult. And I would agree, you know, and keeping that vision for them going, right? Where we're headed and why your dad's putting in all this work. But just thank you for just laying out, you know, some keys to success and you're all focused, meeting your partner, even the different things that you both are good at and why that's important, leveraging his experience and going through that first deal and some struggles, you know, about the due diligence and your team. It's so important, you know, the things that you've learned there and that obviously can help us. Like we talked about managing all that while getting started and working full time, you got to do it. You just have to find a way. And I loved what you said, you know, whatever it takes to get a great deal done and exhaust it, you know, till it's just dead, right? Until you can't come up with anything else. So just pleasure to meet you again. Tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Easiest way to reach me is usually by email. And it's just Nick, you know, N-I-C-K at Quantum Capital Inc. Dot com and quantum is Q-U-A-N-T-U-M capital and then Inc is I-N-C dot com. That's also our website and kind of check us out in some of our past projects and what we look at and that's where to find us. Yeah, and I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.